Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, everyone. I am Olga Sergeyevich, the Head of Investor Relations at Village Global. It is my pleasure to introduce our guest today, John Korngold. John is the co-head of technology investing at Blackstone and the global head of Blackstone Growth. Prior to joining the firm in 2019, John was the head of General Atlantic's global financial services and healthcare sectors, and he started his career at Goldman Sachs. In today's conversation, we will discuss the current state of the technology investing markets and private markets in general, evolution of growth equity, and John's reflections on the art and science of investing. John, welcome to Village Global Stories. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Let's start a little bit with your background, your path to Blackstone, and obviously it's one of the most iconic brands in the financial services industry, but what are some of the things people don't know about Blackstone typically? What were some of the surprising things when you joined the firm? You know, I, I probably break that down to the there's a softer element and then there's the, the more tangible assets. I mean, the people at Blackstone are truly kind. Uh, I've just been struck by how humble, approachable, and, and truly kind the people are. You don't associate that with a big firm like Blackstone. And you know, years ago, when you associate private equity investing with the barbarians at the gate, that is just so far from the truth of what I've experienced at Blackstone. Um, and you see that in terms of you know doing well by doing good. Blackstone's portfolio companies have hired 100,000 veterans, veteran spouses, and caregivers. I've just been really struck with, uh, with just how kind the people are. On the more tangible aspects of the firm, I, I wish there was a more technical term to describe it. But the resources here are just bonkers. Um, it's amazing what nearly a trillion dollars of assets gives you the luxuries of having. You know, we've got over a billion square feet of e-commerce logistics warehouses. We buy centrally on behalf of nearly 750,000 people. That makes us a top 10 global employer. So we just buy things bigger and better. We get deeper FedEx discounts. We get better AWS discounts for our portfolio companies. We have dozens and dozens of data scientists you know, most growth in VC firms don't have any data scientists. Um, we've got $250 billion of, of revenue. You know, we're consistently one of the largest fee payers to the service industry globally. It doesn't guarantee anything, but when you're someone's single largest global client, it does guarantee they're going to meet with your companies. And they might even meet them two or three times before they say no. And so the idea was you've got this huge base of operational infrastructure, and now it's, we're able to apply it to companies in a much earlier stage of their development to help them take advantage of transformational growth opportunities. So that really struck me uh, with just how vast the reach of, of being one of the largest owners of assets in the world and kind of the advantages that come from that scale. And tell us more about your path to Blackstone. Um, and you know, with, during your role at General Atlantic, you led financial services, healthcare investing practices. How have you seen those industries change during the time you were there? How did it influence the type of investor that you are today? Sure. So yeah, I owe my whole career to, to my time at GA. I mean, it's a fabulous firm. It's been the gold standard of, of growth equity. So I wasn't leaving GA um, just to go to Blackstone. I, I left GA because I was given the luxury of a blank sheet of paper um, to fundamentally reimagine the way in which one can support the needs of these very late stage growth equity companies. And so in a way that you look at the ecosystem more broadly, not GA, but just more broadly, what I noticed was that a lot of what we had seen was really more of a beta play, right? It's more passive 
indexed approach. You have hundreds and hundreds of portfolio companies, and that works in a bull market. But what I felt was there was an opportunity to create much more consistent value by through operational acumen, as opposed to this more indexed approach to late stage growth equity investing. And so taking a much more concentrated approach to portfolio construction. Mm-hmm. Right? So for us, the number of board seats per senior investment professional, for example, is around two. And that's a fraction of what you typically see in kind of traditional growth and venture firms. We took a much more hands-on operational approach, right? With the idea rather than just being finding the winning company, you have to be in a position to also make the winning company, make the winner, um, in order to take these regional champions and make them into much more global champions. And we had an opportunity to fundamentally revisit the risk and volatility associated with growth and technology investing by focusing on later stage companies that you can bend but won't break. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're really cutting off a lot of the left tail of risk that you would often associate with kind of hyper growth companies. And the whole idea was could we weaponize an otherwise cottage industry by bringing the scale of the resource I just mentioned to these younger companies? And so I certainly didn't join because I think the world needed more growth equity. There's plenty of growth equity. In fact, there's way too much growth equity, but it, there's not too much growth equity of our flavor. And I think there was a unique opportunity that I think in hindsight, we've proven that you know has been a valid thesis that we can help entrepreneurs fight way above their weight class in doing so, um, pursue transformational growth opportunities without the execution risks that you might associate with hyper growth environments. So we'll double click a little bit more into some of the things that you mentioned, uh, but let's maybe start with a more high level view. What excites you today and what worries you about private markets? Valuations still remain high. I mean, the public market has done a good job of, of correcting in many cases, maybe even overcorrecting in certain areas. I think the private markets, especially outside the US, like places like Europe and you know, Europe, Asia and other places, I think those have been much slower to correct. The US, I think there's been a broader recognition, almost a capitulation by entrepreneurs that we're not going back to 2021. That said, a huge amount of capital had been raised that's mm-hmm. allowing these companies to stay underwater for a while without having to poke their head up and take a down round. And you're seeing VCs and others do all sorts of unnatural things to protect their marks because no one wants to accept that the market has fallen as much as it has. And so you're seeing all sorts of structures being offered to allow us to synthetically step into a lower value than maybe the previous round. That's not healthy, right? You, you should just want to pay the full side of a fair price and not use all this complex structuring. Because at the end of the day, the only people that get hurt in that are the management teams. We don't have the luxury of all those bells and whistles on your structure. So I worry a little bit about there's still a lot of capital that's artificially supporting these values and in many ways delaying the inevitable. Uh, A lot of these companies are not going to make it. And there's going to be a bunch of zombie portfolios that are going to come out in the next few years when these companies inevitably do run out of their money. And you don't have Silicon Valley Bank in the same way anymore. You don't have cheap money from the Fed, you don't have this unabated appetite by VCs to fund all ideas and grow at all costs. So I think there's going to be a lot of casualties on the road. And I think just some of those will be delayed. On the positive side, if you look over history, the most innovative moments have come after kind of financial corrections. So if you think about the great financial crisis, you had cloud computing became a dominant form of kind of in- infrastructure. You have SaaS software. I saw an interesting stat that I think in 2009, I think there were four publicly traded SaaS companies, and now there's something like 150 uh, SaaS companies. Mobile phone penetration uh, exploded after 2009. I think in a similar way, if you look at this correction, to the extent there could be a silver lining, 
it's a bit of a brush fire. You know, sometimes the healthiest thing for a forest is when you kind of clear out the underbrush and it allows kind of new green shoots of innovation to spot to, to pop up. And we're seeing that now with things like AI and, and other kind of new advances, because the cost of leaving your existing job has not been lower than it has been now versus in the last 15 years, right? So a lot of management teams are stuck in companies under mountains of preferred shares at valuations they're never going to grow their way into. And they're saying, you know, I may as well just leave. Um, and even the big you know, massive tech companies have been laying off people. And so you have a lot more talent that's available today than it was even six months ago. And that tends to be a good thing because that becomes the basis upon which innovation really kind of can sprout. So I'm excited about what we what's in front of us. Well, we certainly see a lot of these things that you mentioned at our stage as well. As, as you know, we invest super early, um, mostly pre-seed, and, and we certainly see that valuation expectations have not adjusted in other markets outside of the United States quite as much as here. We see the threshold for, for the quality of sort of technical talent and the idea to get funded much higher today than it was before. Um, sort of what you call entrepreneurs are out, and that's probably a good thing. Um, and certainly talent has been the big, biggest bottleneck for a lot of companies in the last few years, and that's a lot easier today. So, you know, quite excited. And, um, you know, since you mentioned AI, this is, this is a sector where there's a lot of excitement for lots of good reasons, but at the same time, very often that comes at the cost of much, much higher valuations. So given your portfolio construction, given the more sort of conservative stance on things like valuations and path to profitability, um, what are you doing in, in AI? And how do you think about the opportunity set in the sector? Yeah, so so AI is, is a core part of our thematic work globally across the firm. And we've, as I mentioned, we have data, dozens of data scientists. It's an area that's near and dear to our heart. Even our, our founder has been a massive supporter of kind of AI involvement, both on the ethical side and gifts to Oxford, as well as to um, you know, phenomenal advancements, to, to, you know, donations to MIT. So this is kind of part and parcel of everything we're looking at. That said, there are phenomenal growth opportunities, but it's also filled with hype. Right? There are going to be a lot of casualties, um, not just successes on this one. So you got to be very careful. I also think it's very, very dangerous to try to take on some of the big giants like Microsoft and Google and Amazon and others. I mean, they have a, a virtually unlimited war chest to kind of go after some of these LLMs uh, in a different way. And so I think where we're trying to play is on maybe the first derivative of that. Maybe it's all the information that's being fed into these models at the end of the day, they need to still be able to interact with legacy databases. So to the extent that you can invest in companies that are helping to draw information out of legacy databases to populate some of these models, I think that's an interesting, relatively safe area. I think where it gets dangerous is when you have VC and growth firms like us trying to dance among elephants uh, who see this as a strategic imperative. If you're a firm like Google, you can't get this wrong. And so you don't want to have to go up against Google in that regard. So we're trying to dance carefully, but it's a really important area because I think the step change function that is coming out of AI is something we haven't seen in many, many, many years. I mean, there was a hype cycle recently around crypto and digital infrastructure, and you know the jury's out as to whether there's really many use cases for it. I mean, so far it's been you know fewer and further between. That. I think many of the the excited pundits you know kind of pushed towards for a while. That's not the case with AI. I mean, valuations might be high, but the technology is not. Yep. And let's take maybe a little bit of a step back and um, think about the alternative investment management industry overall. At Blackstone, you have a number of different strategies. Um, you know, what are some of the trends in the alternative investment industry that you find most exciting? And um, 
And how do you think about technology investing through those different types of strategies and asset classes? Yeah, so I think historically, if you go back 20 years ago, people thought alternative asset managers limited to very few products. It might be real estate investing, it might be late stage private equity investing, it might be early stage VC. And now it's become so incredibly stratified. I mean, there's so many nuanced approaches to gaining different exposures for, for people to kind of manage their, their risk and their global allocations. So just many more solutions. And I think that's translating to outperformance as a broader asset class, where instead of alternatives kind of being on the fringe, it's becoming increasingly core part of people's portfolio. I think you take that one step further. And I think one of the most exciting trends is the democratization of access to these alternatives. It used to be limited to ultra high net worth individuals and pension funds or sovereign wealth funds. And now it's opening up to a much, much larger swath of the economy. Retail investors, you sell through the banks, you sell through independent advisory channels. And I think the, the, the holy grail of all of this will be if the retirement, you know, the, the direct contribution area, that eventually opens up to have access to private equity and growth equity and real estate investing. Uh, that has proven to be a valuable thing in the pension side, and hopefully it makes its way to kind of 401k and direct contribution. So I think the democratization of alternatives, I don't think is a path that's going backwards. I think there's only one direction from this point on. Yep. And let's talk a little bit about um, the evolution of growth equity um, as a strategy, as an asset class. How do you think about different types of investors who play within sector? And you know, maybe more specifically, you see some of the more venture capital type of backgrounds versus PE, DNA type of investors. And how do you think working with either type affects founders? What should founders think about when they talk to these different types of growth equity investors? Yeah, there's a, there's a role for every one of the constituents you just mentioned. I think the good news is like growth equity is, is no longer on the fringe. It's a mainstay. In fact, so much so that I'd argue growth equity has become a bit of a Rorschach test. Every VC now calls themselves a growth equity firm. Hedge funds call themselves growth equity. Private equity funds call themselves growth equity. Um, and so the good news in that is there's a lot of interest in more fuel for innovation. The bad news is there's a lot of confusion as to exact skill sets of what makes one better than the other. And I think where it gets very dangerous is, let's say, when a VC thinks they've got the skill set of a large-scale PE firm, or when a PE firm thinks they've got the innovative touch of a VC. And when they confuse themselves, largely because a bull market makes us all feel a lot smarter than we really are, that's where I think a lot of trouble comes out of that. So there's definitely a role for each. To me, you step back and you think about the underlying risks that you're seeking to manage and what type of portfolio construction you need to have. So for example, if you're taking technology risks or if you're taking business model evolution risks, right? So today you might sell a dollar for 80 cents and one day you'll grow your way into success or market development risk. Like if you build it, they will come. Those are risks that are decidedly venture-like in, in nature. For when you invest in that world and in, in Village Global, I mean, you're at the earliest stage as fostering innovation. That is, you absolutely have to take a large scale portfolio construction in order to be able to do that. No doubt about that. Because there's too many opportunities. You don't know which one's going to work. The further out you go on the spectrum of development for these companies, when they reach their adolescence, I would argue extending that hyper diversification starts to limit the amount of influence you can really have on these companies. And so, Oftentimes, what we call growth equity can be, I'd say, cynically interpreted as VC at scale. And I think that is a bull market strategy. Whereas I think if you look at execution risk, right? So when you're beyond the binary 
risks of growth and early stage or early stage growth and late stage venture, you start to think about how do I minimize the operational strains or the execution risk associated with really fast growing environments? That's a very different skill set. I think that plays very well to firms like, let's say, for example, Blackstone, that have an army of resources to help management teams gain access to a set of infrastructure to help them scale in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And so there's a role for each. One is not better than the other. But I think where it gets very dangerous is when people confuse what they're very good at and what they're not as they think about their own fund expansions. Mm -hmm. Let's maybe go through one case study um, and just think through some of the companies where you invested and how you were able to step in, bring some of that operational improvement expertise um, and and change the company trajectory in the in the most recent past. Yeah, sure. I mean, fortunately, we've got you know a number of good case studies uh, at, at, at this point, you know uh, with, with Blackstone and Blackstone growth. But I think a common thread is, you know, take like an e-commerce company as, as a good example. We're investors in Spanx and we're investor in Supergroup, just to pick kind of two fun names that you know, many, many people will know. And for a business like that, where we can maybe be uniquely helpful in a way that a traditional growth fund might not otherwise be able to be equally helpful or even a VC, is that there's probably a more holistic set of infrastructure that we can bring to these companies that they need to take the next stage to go from adolescence to adulthood, if you will, or kind of reaching the end state. So for example, if if historically you sold only through wholesale channels, you know, department stores, and now you're selling direct to consumer, Blackstone is the largest owner of e-commerce logistics assets in the world. So we have a deep, deep domain expertise in understanding kind of omni-channel commerce, online, offline environments, e-commerce. Um, Amazon has spoiled us all coming out of the um the, the you know COVID and the quarantine where if you don't get something same day, or maybe one day, or you know, God forbid, two days, but unthinkable, I'm going to pay for shipping and wait eight days. If you can't provide that level of service to a customer, then increasingly, they're going to find solutions where they can get that. The problem is the practical limitations of being able to deliver same day or two day delivery requires hundreds of millions of square feet of logistics infrastructure around there. Now, fortunately, we own among the largest set of last mile delivery centers in, in Europe and the US. We have a business called Link Logistics, and they help fulfill that last mile capability. So understanding and advising management teams on how you set up a globally integrated delivery capability is a skill set that only comes when you're one of the largest owners of commercial real estate assets in the world, which Blackstone is, and that's probably a good tangible example to point to. As I mentioned, we buy centrally on behalf of nearly 750,000 people across I don't know, something like 70 plus categories, healthcare, uh, it could be insurance, it could be AWS, FedEx, Azure, all the above. And so when you can take 15 or 20% savings across some of these categories, you fundamentally change the unit economics for these companies of the basket size they need to charge at checkout in order to be able to tap into significantly larger addressable markets. That's something, once again, a standalone firm typically can't do because they don't have the buying power of a top 10 global employer and a top five U.S. employer when you look at the roughly 750,000 people across our portfolio in its totality. We have a digital marketing team, uh, for example, that helps our companies think through campaigns on TikTok and Snap and Instagram. We have dozens of data scientists, as I mentioned. Um, you know, Most firms don't have any 
Never mind, have enough to get rid of one and second them down to our companies for months at a time to really help these management teams almost see the matrix, if you will, uh, because they themselves, their companies probably can't otherwise afford the caliber of data science talent because we're not competing typically with other VCs and growth firms for this data science talent. We're competing with Facebook or Google or, or Amazon for that. But you can do that when you have nearly a trillion dollars of infrastructure to amortize those against. You know, we're one of the largest owners of hotels in the world. Right. And so if we can make introductions to um, you know, companies like uh, Great Wolf Lodge or, or Cosmopolitan or, or you know, uh, La Quinta, phenomenal cross-selling opportunities. And then more generally, we've got $250 billion of opportunity of, of revenue in, in the Blackstone ecosystem. And we have a dedicated team whose sole job is cross-selling. That's all they do uh, to help them with go-to-market, both internally within the four walls of kind of the Blackstone ecosystem. But then also just more generally with our third-party constituents that are out there. So those are examples. And the irony of what I just mentioned is not a single thing I, I said had anything to do with growth equity. Like the very best companies actually don't need your growth equity. Right? They don't need your money. So they're typically taking our growth capital because it gives them access to the system of know, alpha generation that Blackstone can uniquely provide these companies. You know, And business like Spanx or Supergroup and others alike would benefit from some of the resources I just mentioned. Um, well, a number of things here. One, Supergoop definitely is the best sunscreen out there. So um, that's, that's a little uh, plug. And then as a very impatient person, same day delivery or one day delivery is one of the things that consistently makes me happy. So thank you for enabling that for more and more brands in the world. But um, since you mentioned Snap and Instagram, um, are you active on any forms of social media? What's your social media strategy personally? Personally, uh, I, it's, it, I'm embarrassed to say this. I, I co-head tech investing here. I, I follow it, but it's more, probably more in a creepy stalker way, only insofar as I use it to get in touch with my, my friends who I haven't seen. Um, but I've made a policy. I actually don't post on these, these things. I mean, outside of LinkedIn, I, I, on a personal level, I just I try to keep a, as little digital footprint as possible. And in many ways, I'm trying to set an example for my kids. I've got three kids that are 15, 13, and 11. And you, know, you realize when you, you've got an adolescent brain, um, sometimes your filter and judgment is not great. What you put online becomes permanent, um, can get taken out of context. And so my, my wife and I um, are really very, very infrequent, if ever, posters on, on these uh, social media platforms. We're huge fans of them, and it's a phenomenal way to reconnect with old friends. And so I love it for that. Um, but I'm not an active contributor, ironically. And I'm, I sound like, as I say this, you know, a boomer, um, but but I'm but I'm not. It's just I'm trying to just protect my family and myself from getting myself in trouble. Well, um, you know, looking at, at the reflections uh, from a lot of other people's uh, social media presence, I would say that poor judgment on what's supposed versus not has been fully democratized to all age groups. But um, but fair enough. And what let's let's talk a little bit about sort of current market expectations because they certainly have shifted for companies what it takes to raise around. Um, so what specifically are you looking for? And and maybe it has shifted less given the nature of your strategy. But what are you looking for today? What advice would you give to founders? Yeah, you know, for us since the beginning, we've largely focused on on really disciplined business models. And the majority of our companies, for example, are profitable um, and certainly a, a minimum break even. And it doesn't mean they all have to be, to be clear. Um, but I also don't subscribe to kind of the mantra that you should grow at all costs. And I think in fairness, that characterized a lot of growth and VC activity for the last 10 years. 
in a low rate environment where people were encouraging entrepreneurs to grow as fast as you can. And don't worry, there'll be down rounds. I mean, down downstream rounds that will fund for you. We never subscribe to that. You know, when you invest in businesses that have high operating leverage and you can invest in companies with scale, that naturally translates to a more profitable profile, right? So in some ways you get to a size company where you almost have to try to not be profitable. And so one of the things I look at is gross margins. Right, when you tell me you've got 5% gross margins, there's not a lot of room for you to ever make money on this. When you invest in companies that have 80 or 90% gross margins, there's plenty of opportunity. And I think as a result of that, we probably take a different stance on how much you're willing to invest to support that, that growth, because you know when growth attenuates, you're going to translate to something that's very, very profitable because you're starting with very high gross margins. And we look for obviously strong management teams, but we look for adaptable management teams. Everything for the last 15 years has been up and to the right. And there's been very few lessons learned by entrepreneurs because the market has stripped them of any natural feedback mechanism because everything they did worked until it didn't. And so when I meet founders, one of the things I, I often pay attention to is how much they allow the team around them to speak. Oftentimes you have this big cult of personality, very charismatic entrepreneur, and everybody else in the room stays quiet. That's dangerous. Um, those are the types of entrepreneurs you have to be very, very careful about. On the one hand, they have great breakout potential, but often highlights maybe a level of hubris that they're not willing to surround themselves uh, with the people around them that might challenge their thinking. And I think what we find is the very best entrepreneurs kind of treat us as invited guests and want our influence, want our ideas. At the end of the day, it's their company, uh, but we're not wallflowers. And so we look for management teams that are willing to learn and be humble. That's a really important kind of consistent theme uh, in what we're doing. And ironically, hiring management teams who previously spent time in low margin businesses make them very, very disciplined. Ironically, investing in companies where the founders only lived in a world where they have 80, 90% gross margins, it makes up for a lot of operating sins. And sometimes you want to be able to have people who think more like a founder where it's been bootstrapped as opposed to spending gobs of cash that were thrown on them by VCs um, to go spend at all costs. And, and I think that commonality is what we're trying to advise some of our management teams is profitability is okay. It's not, it's not a crime. I mean, people say, oh, well, profitability. So 2015, the reality is good businesses should be profitable over time. And we, we've been that way before kind of the market corrected and will remain that way going forward. So just discipline. Yeah. Um, since you mentioned operating improvements, um, Operator investors have been very popular in venture capital, you know, for well over a decade now. And of course, this is where founder preference is quite often. But there are different types of operators, right? As you pointed out, there are some folks who have been operating in different margin type of environments and they have different reflections. So um, how do you think about bringing the best operating partners on board? Who makes the best operating partners? There are certain you know, skill sets, types of industries, types of businesses. And is there anything beyond those types of frameworks, uh, more on the personality side or anything else? Um, what makes a good operating partner today? Yeah, it's, it's, it's probably a few things that come to mind. I think the first is a willingness to accept the player coach role as opposed to the player. Because a lot of operators have spent their entire career on the field. And I think many of them really struggle with the transition that they're just going to be on the sidelines, kind of helping advise the players on the field. Um, and for those who can kind of manage that transition, they can be fabulously valuable sounding boards to younger or, or less seasoned entrepreneurs. Um, so I think that's number one. I think number two, 
in many ways, I think entrepreneurs tend to bring firms like us in and operating partners in alongside them, less for the things we did right, but really more for the things we probably did wrong. Right? We've all made hundreds, if not thousands of mistakes. We're just not dumb enough to make the same ones twice. So I view the operating partner, and I think more broadly firms like ours, as a repository of pattern recognition of where the wheels tend to come off the race car um, as a company scales rapidly to kind of the end state. And I think because of that, you there's enough recognition of, again, going back to pattern recognition, of where operational strains get introduced alongside a company's development at various stages. So one might be a very unsophisticated approach to pricing, right? So you have to have a pricing expert. Another one might be, as we talked about, data science and really trying to better understand your customer cohorts and having that resource. Another one might, might be digital marketing and customer acquisition. And we've mentioned that in the e-commerce world. Some of it could be M&A. A lot of companies are really good at growing organically, but don't really understand how do you integrate a business? How do you think about bringing two cultures together, two brands together, two software instances together? to sales forces, to pricing models. So those are examples of where we have seen operational strains get introduced over time. And we built deep benches of operating resources with bespoke solutions and pattern recognition to help management teams along the way. I think those tend to be the best ones. It's the, again, humble management teams, the humble operating partners who are there saying, I'm not here to take your job. I'm just here to kind of put my arm around you and share with you some of the things I did wrong over time. And that becomes an incredibly powerful model when it's when it's done correctly. And let's talk a little bit about um, sort of different experiences that you've had living in different countries. So you spend a considerable amount of time living and working abroad, including in China and the UK. What were some of the most challenging and most rewarding um, experiences from those times? Well, certainly one of the most rewarding is developing a cultural sensitivity that can only come by spending time overseas. Right? I, I grew up in a suburb of, of New York. It was a well-educated household, but it was a largely provincial upbringing. It was a good, delightful suburban existence. And I never left the country really besides fishing in Canada um, until I went to college. And then when I lived abroad and I spent time in Beijing, as you pointed out, I've lived in London a couple of times, I couldn't unsee what I then saw. Um, and so there's no one in the world that at their deathbed, they look back and say, gosh, I really regret traveling when I was younger. I really regret learning about another culture. Um, no one says that. And so I'd strongly encourage anyone and everyone that has the luxury of being able to spend some time outside of their, their home country to do that. Only good things can come from that. The world has way too much to offer to just myopically stay in your, in your hometown. Um, but it's translated well, I think, for work because you start to see once again, pattern recognition, right? Certain models work in some markets and some won't work in others. And why is that the case? You know, healthcare you know, as an example. In some markets, healthcare is perceived to be an inalienable right. Whereas in other markets, healthcare is still perceived to be a benefit. It's very difficult for you to make outsized margins on someone's inalienable right from a societal point of view. And so you'd have to be cautious about investing in certain sectors because in certain geographies relative to others, the playbook is not the same. But I think as a result of that, the more you understand about global markets, the more relevant you can become to advising an entrepreneur as they think about global expansion. Because the days of regional investing, those are gone. 
those are gone. The world is inextricably linked now. And we saw that with COVID. I mean, look how fast the kind of world shut down uh, because of the contagion effect. That in many ways mirrors what business has become. And so if you don't have a well-informed understanding of what's around outside your borders, um, you might be surprised. And if nothing else, you'd be on defense, but there's an opportunity to play offense as well with that knowledge. You point to an interesting phenomenon of travel as education. And very often when, you know, when people are young and they make decisions on where they want to spend time and, and countries get to know, they make these decisions on the basis of lots of different factors. And, and I'm sure you've had a lot of these conversations with your children about where they'd want to spend time um, as as they graduate from high school onwards. Um, what are your thoughts on if, if you were advising a young person today, where should they spend, you know, a couple of years? In what regions of the world, what countries, or should they just, you know, follow their passion if they saw a movie they really loved and they kind of wanted that experience? What are your thoughts on uh, travel as education? Oh, gosh. Um, definitely should spend time abroad. Uh, I strongly would recommend the equivalent of the gap year. Um, it doesn't have to be right before college. It could be right after college. But taking time while you still have the luxury of doing it in your schedule, because once life sets in, and you have a job or you have a family, it's very difficult for you to pull out for six or 12 months. And I think just being able to really understand the world would be a phenomenal growth opportunity just through a gap year. Um, I think the second thing is pursue your passion, right? Be good at whatever it is that you do and love what you do. Um, and not every everyone tries to be so vocational in, in their programming. So I'm gonna take computer science, and then I'm gonna take corporate finance and I'm gonna get the right internship and in some private equity firm and I'm gonna hyper-engineer um, myself, the practical reality is the vast majority of subject of jobs that will be created by the time my kids graduate from college are not even present today. So you just got to teach them how to be thinkers, orthogonal, holistic thinkers. And so I think a liberal arts background, for example, is a fabulous way to do that because it, it allows you to draw from history in doing that. You know, they say those who cannot remember their past are condemned to repeat it. You know, George Santana said that. That's totally true. Uh, history has a funny way of repeating itself and liberal arts does give you the luxury of kind of learning from kind of various disciplines and does allow you to be a little bit more creative. It doesn't mean to be clear, if you go to Wharton or others, that's a great opportunity too. But I, I think people need to re resist the temptation of saying, I have to be in the perfect Mandarin class followed by computer science and I'm going to do all these other things. And you sometimes miss the, the kind of joy of the journey along the way. And uh, let's go back to something you mentioned earlier. So you said, that um, at Blackstone, you are very careful with um, how many board positions your team members have. And you mentioned it's it's no more than two. Um, and um, let's talk about what makes a good board member in your view. And uh, I recently was a part of a discussion where somebody shared that um, there's a VC firm that has a lot of data on the composition of boards. And uh, they've seen that the moment there are three or more VCs on the board, performance of the companies drops. Um, so that's, I thought that was a very interesting insight. But um, let's talk about, you know, what does it take to be a good member, a good board member? What does a perfect composition look like? And, um, and how it probably, in your mind, how it should evolve from earlier stages to later stages? What should founders think about? Yeah, I, I strongly believe that steady. I haven't seen it, but in just intuitively, I think the, the is huge diminishing marginal returns to having three, four VCs on a board. Uh, obviously, everyone sits on the board because they have a fiduciary obligation to look after the capital that they've invested. But from a company's point of view, you spend more time as an investor relations role than you do actually executing your, your strategy when you've got four or five different VCs around the board. 
Um, having different viewpoints is great, but I'm not sure the extra incremental VC or growth equity firm on the board is going to be terribly additive. Uh, so I think finding people who are former operators who've kind of seen the end state um, is is really, really important. Um, I think having diverse perspectives, diverse backgrounds is incredibly important. Um, and so we spend that. But for me, the son of a good board member is, can you show up to that board meeting and not need to have anything told to you in that board meeting that you don't already know? A good board member is not there to fill a seat. Um, you, you should be talking to your management teams every you know, multiple times each week. And so shame on you as a board member, if you show up to a meeting and you actually learn something about the company that you didn't otherwise already know. Um, and so that's why I'm so focused on keeping a very, very low board seat to senior professional ratio here at Blackstone Growth, because it allows us to not have to choose among children. Right? When you have the luxury of having just a few boards to look after, you can really get subsim and deep and function more like a strategic, just in the skin of a growth equity firm. It's very tough to do that when you're on 5, 10, 15 boards over time. In a bull market, you can get away with that. In a dislocated world, when the economic headwinds hit, unfortunately, they don't just hit one company. They tend to hit them all at the same time. And then you start to triage your portfolio, and therefore, you probably find yourself spread a little bit too thinly to be able to stay on top of, of all the different issues that are facing your companies at a moment in time. So a good board member is one that has bandwidth, that really digs in on your companies, that's not arrogant. And that really helps these management teams navigate the challenges. Because for you, you might have done this dozens of times. For that entrepreneur, they might have done this only once. And this might be their first journey. But you've got to be available. That's your obligation to that management team is to make sure you have the bandwidth to really show up um, and add value along the way, not just fill a seat in uh, the perfunctory you know, four board meetings and the one strategic offsite per year. Yep. And double clicking on the positive and negative lessons that, um, you know, people can learn in their investing careers that could make them a better board member, partner to a founder, et cetera. Let's talk a little bit about your investing career. What were some of the examples of trends or sectors that maybe you had a non-consensus view on that played out right? And then were there any that you wish you didn't pass on? Oh, on the latter one is a ton. I mean, gosh, the most humbling thing that's happened in my career is the bull market. Everything you passed on went up. And you know, the jury is still out. I don't know which ones are ultimately going to prove, but you know, data would suggest that the more you had invested in the early parts of the bull market, you probably got rewarded. And whether or not the fundamentals really justified it, the scoreboard would say otherwise. As long as people are able to get out at the peak of the market, you know, sometimes it's better to be lucky than, than good. And so there's tons. I'd be remiss to think that I got everything right. There's errors of omission and errors of commission. And I think if you look at my career, I probably made more mistakes on the errors of omission, i.e. the deals I didn't do than the ones I did and I underwrote it incorrectly. I think from a consensus, uh, I mean, against the consensus view, I think probably two things are maybe most staunch. We just talked about our disproportionate focus on profitable type companies in a world where people were told to grow at all costs and you had many cash hemorrhaging unicorns uh, kind of proliferate as a result of that. I think the second one is notwithstanding the phenomenal long-term growth opportunities in China, we made a very conscious decision here at Blackstone Growth over the last several years to not have any exposure to Chinese technology companies. And instead, we thought for what we were trying to do, we can deliver superior risk-adjusted, dollar-adjusted returns in North America and Europe as the majority of our portfolio. It's like 95% of our portfolio is in those two regions. Um, doesn't mean that China is not part of our mandate. Absolutely not. China, it's a global pool. China's got phenomenal long-term opportunity. 
But as you know, many, many growth funds, many VC funds, many hedge funds really led with their chin into China. And I think in hindsight, that has proven to be a costly mistake over the last five years. Similarly, we stayed away from crypto entirely. It's an area we spent a tremendous amount of time on. So we know a lot more than perhaps my portfolio would suggest we do. But we were just not convinced that our investors were going to get rewarded for the hype cycle that I think everyone was forced to endure. And the I'd say the embryonic regulatory frameworks that didn't exist or still don't exist on the sector that as and when those got imposed, um, that was going to end up being a very painful moment for the that ecosystem. I think you're seeing a lot of that play out right now. So I think having no China exposure, no crypto exposure, and a, probably a disproportionate focus on profitable growth at a time when it was less fashionable to be that, those are probably three contrarian ways in which we've tried to at least position ourselves. And sometimes it's easier to see paradigm shifts from the future seat, right? <clears throat> Just looking backwards. But as, as you are in the moment and as you're seeing things change, it's it's difficult to figure out what those changes might be. So what are the types of questions or areas that you find yourself debating most about in your IC today? Or like, what are you not certain about and what are you watching to form a view there? You know, one is still valuations. You know, where is it ultimately set out, settle out? Um, you know, there's, there's a side of me that says you have the luxury when you invest in growth equity in gaining exposure to companies that are likely to be on the right side of history, right? So the disruptors themselves. Yellow pages were really good investments until Google came along. And taxi medallions were amazing cash flow investments until Uber came along, right? So if you can invest in that proverbial Uber or Google, uh, you have a fighting chance of maybe having more upside potential. That's a, a truism, of course. But we debate about is well, what value will the market long-term ascribe to it? Um, and it's very tough to tell because the public market is saying one thing, the private market, and even deals being done in recent times are suggesting something potentially different. So we spent some time thinking about what the long-term fundamentals support. I think the second thing is we debate a lot about the move between or the debate between best of breed and best of suite for technology investing. Right? I think in the last 10 years, there were a lot of point solutions that in some ways masquerade as companies and maybe should have been funded as such. But because there was such a supportive funding network for these types of companies, large clients were not as scared to maybe take bets on the most innovative solution. And they're like, well, I know they'll be around, they'll get funding, and I can manage that. I think in a world where it's still very precarious, and it's not clear that a lot of these one-off best-of-breed companies will make it through this kind of funding desert for a while, then I think a lot of companies might naturally default to best-of-suite where it's, it's not perfect, but it might be good enough. And so we debate that a lot, which is, is there enough appetite in the enterprise to continue to invest in best of suite, I'm sorry, best of breed, which characterized most growth in venture investing for the last 10 years? And will that change going forward? And if so, for how long? Is it until we get back to a more benign economic environment? Or is this a new paradigm shift where people are saying, hey, Microsoft and Salesforce, oh, these are good enough. I don't need to be taking risks with very, very small one-off companies that might not make it in the end. So that's what we probably debate most. Yep. Well, that, that's an interesting reflection and definitely an interesting thing to think about for early stage investors and founders building and starting companies today. So maybe that's a good topic to conclude on. What advice would you give to founders starting something new today or early stage investors who are at the very forefront of innovation um, and allocating in, in some cases, much riskier opportunities? But given 
your seat and what you see in, in broader shifts in private markets, um, what would you recommend they think about, spend time on, and um, allocate their time? Yeah, I, I think there's never been a moment with the the, the 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 basis for more innovation than there is right now. As I kind of alluded to that brush fire, you're seeing just a phenomenal surge in talent, technology, infrastructure. I mean, we talked about AI and some of the the, the large language models. Just phenomenal, explosive growth opportunities, and not just limited to tech. I think oftentimes VC and growth are often associated with tech. The far bigger prize in the economy is a tech enablement of large traditional industries, like e-commerce and retail are the same. You know, when people say fintech, that drives me crazy because there's no part of financial services that's not tech enabled. Those are inextricably linked. And so the, the sets of addressable markets are explosive in growth right now. And there's never been a better moment to attract great talent to pursue that. And so I'm super excited to see kind of what's coming down the pipe and the speed of that innovation. And, and groups like yours are really at the forefront of, of facilitating the funding of that. And so you know, hopefully downstream, we have a chance to, to partner with a lot of those great companies. And so I just keep up the innovation. Yep, excited about it. And what is something you are an expert on outside of your professional expertise? My, my wife and kids would say nothing, unfortunately. Um, so I've never felt more humbled and dumb when I come home and my 15-year-old says, I don't understand anything. And, you know, I think for me, I would probably define my career. I wasn't, and I'm not great at anything. I'm pretty good at a lot of things though. You know, my, my whole life, my dad and mom always taught me to be more like the decathlete, which was the winner of the decathlon is not the one who came in first in the sprint and last in the high jump. You know, it's the one who was kind of number two and three and across the board, but holistically, um, you know, they, they end up winning the decathlon. I think I've probably tried to model my, my own career. I'm not the best investor. I'm not the best, you know, anything. Um, but I try to be really good at a lot of things. And, and hopefully I, I think what I'm pretty good at is having an intellectual curiosity. Um, so I'm always trying to learn every single meeting I take. I always write down like, what did I learn from that? And, and you know, you do that every day, you start to become reasonably wise. Um, so that's probably what is, it's probably the, maybe a, a more balanced, uh, skill set rather than being a savant in anything. I'm envious of savants because I'm like, oh my God, look what they can do. But unfortunately, I don't have that, that that DNA. So I'm trying to play with what I was given. Well, thank you so much for confirming all of my assumptions about the world and for that inspirational message for all the journalists out there. Um, and it's been just such a pleasure talking to you about everything from growth investing um, to travel and to some of the specific trends in, in tech today. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for joining. Thanks, Elga. I appreciate you having me. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.